We've got some interesting candidate developments on the ballot to talk about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin and Leila Tassi. And let's get right to the first one. Does Ohio election law discriminate against transgender candidates seeking political office, or are some recent would-be candidates to blame for their failure to make the ballot? Layla, this is a very interesting kind of question to address. It is. Uh, Obviously, we've seen in Ohio a number of bills pop up in the past year that seek to further marginalize the trans community. There have been bans suggested on drag queens in libraries and restrictions on minors receiving gender-affirming care, trans athletes competing in women's sports. All of that has really inspired trans candidates to challenge the incumbents who put these bills forth. But an Ohio law says that candidates have to include on their candidate petitions any name that they have used in the past five years. The point of that is so voters know who they're voting for and that a criminal can't just sneak onto the ballot using, you know, a fresh pseudonym or whatever. Or or we should point out, or because this has happened, somebody with a non-Irish or Italian name doesn't change it to <laughs> that, that, is, that so they can did. be elect the judge. We've had that happen in Cuyahoga County. Yeah. Except, I will say... I, I think that the the law exempts that from having to be pointed out because remember if you change your name due to marriage, that's not required to be uh to be Is that disclosed. Exempt? Yeah. That's exempt? That's oh, what it says in our story. Oh, all right, I miss that. So and and for so so for some trans candidates, they have decided that enough's enough and they've decided to challenge incumbents here. And um but you know, this requirement means that they have to include what's known as their dead name on their petitions. That's the name they used before they transitioned. For many, that that really represents an identity they'd prefer to keep in their past. And it can be painful when people use their dead names or refer to them if it's very disrespectful. So they some of these candidates did not list those prior names on their petitions. And that meant some of them were disqualified from the ballot for violating that law. We know that's the case with at least one candidate so far. Vanessa Joy, a real estate photographer from Maslin, had submitted paperwork to run as a Democrat for House District 50, which covers most of Stark County outside of Canton. But the Stark County Board of Elections voted on Tuesday to disqualify Joy from running in the March 19th primary because she didn't include her previous name on her candidate petitions. So- that so so far we know of her candidacy being disqualified because of this this issue. I, I do think this is an important law because I do think there are people that want to hide their past. Look, we hear from people all the time who are trying to hide things from their past to get to get beyond it. That's what our whole right to be forgotten is about. Usually it's for minor minor past offenses. But the voters do deserve to know if you're mm-hmm. trying to hide something ugly. Um, and the law is the law. I, I, these candidates probably should have thought about this before they went through with filing because they set up the very real possibility they'd be rejected. I don't quite understand how you can, though, rationalize yes. the exemption for somebody changing their name by right. marriage and not have the same exemption for somebody that changes their name for transgender reasons. That is exactly what feels discriminatory to me yeah. about the law. 
but people deserve to know the background of their candidate. I mean, I look at Elliot Page, who used to be Ellen Page. When in the movies where she's Ellen Page, they still list her as Ellen Page. You know, so I don't think you can escape your past, especially if you're running for public office. And I think the people deserve to know. I, I honestly do. Yeah, I, I actually don't think there should be any exemption at all. I th- I'm, I, I'm surprised there exempt, there's the exemption that you discussed, Layla, for the for the marriage, because we've had people who use that for sinister purposes. I mean, it, and I, it's worked. I mean, it, on occasion. Um, and I, the voters are trusting you to, to represent them. And so having information like that seems like it's legit, but if you're going to have some exemptions, yes. I don't know how you can rationalize not doing it. Mm-hmm. That's the part that really struck me was that, yeah, I just don't understand why you would exempt people, you know, who changed their name for marriage. Why? <laughs> why? Because as you pointed out, a politician who sees, um, good reason to, want to uh, use a popular Irish name on the ballot and their wife happens to have that name. <laughs> I don't want to point anyone out, but you know, that, that has happened. Yeah, um, and, has. um, you know, w- w- don't you think voters should know that? Yes, <laughs> that's, I do. That's actually quite yeah. instructive. Well, they generally do because we publicize the hell out of it when it happens. Yeah, but right. yes, it, it should be. I, the sad part about this is, we do have a legislature that's working to discriminate against transgender. They've made them the villain of the day, and they keep passing laws to to feed the the fringe right groups that support them. And this is going to deprive the state house of possibly having a different viewpoint, which it desperately needs. And that's the the sad part about this. You're listening to today in Ohio. Another statehouse candidate, an incumbent from Northeast Ohio, failed to make the primary ballot because of his own failings. Who is he, Lisa, and why is he likely to win anyway? Yeah, it's Representative Terrence Upchurch. He's the representative of the 20th District, which is in Cleveland um, and other areas, including Brattonall. But he didn't have enough valid signatures to qualify for the March primary ballot for running for his fourth term. So that means he's running as a write-in candidate, but he'll probably win because no other Democrats filed to run in the primary. When you uh, you need 50 write-in votes to win, though, so that's the thing. He needs to get at least 50. 50 people to write his name in. He filed to run on the deadline, which was December 20th. He submitted 56 voter signatures. Only 50 are required, but only 40, 44 of them were valid. Some of them came from voters that were outside his current 20th district that were part of his old 20th district lines. But he withdrew his name on the 27th of December before he was officially rejected by the County Board of Elections. And then he refiled the same day as a write-in. If he had waited for the official rejection, he probably wouldn't have made it on the ballot. He says he was busy with a sick relative. He didn't see the problem until it was too late. And as I explained, he says some of the invalid signatures were people from his old district, which was redrawn last year. That district includes downtown Tremont, University Circle, Huff, Glenville and North Collinwood and all of Brat and all. So whoever wins the primary will face Republican Donna Walker Brown in November. And Upchurch says he decided to do the right in thing because he says, I wasn't going to stand aside and let the district go to a Republican. It's a very heavily Democratic district. I'm disappointed in this. I, we've been impressed with him as a, as a legislator. He's a sharp guy and 
and you just presumed he would coast to another victory. This is a huge lapse. You don't have to get that many signatures, and you're supposed to focus on the the, the redistricting. You knew you had a new district, so I, I'm just surprised and disappointed because he has set it up to where the constituents of his district might not have the representation they want if his write-in candidacy doesn't work. And I've never seen anybody campaign on a write-in candidacy. I'd like to see how that goes. Well, let's hope he's effective at it because he he does owe the... Somebody else would have run if they would have known he was going to drop the ball. So he kind of owes it to his district to get it right in the the write-in campaign. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Ohio lawmakers tried and failed to specifically prohibit cities from banning single-use plastic bags. So, Layla, what law is Attorney General Dave Yost using in his lawsuit to block Athens from enforcing its new bag ban? Yeah, Yost is, is suing Athens for enforcing this bag ban that took effect this year. It, it imposes a $150 fine for any violator. And it bans stores from distributing or selling single-use plastic bags, of course, those that's against uh, language that was slipped into the state budget in 2021, saying a person, quote, may use an auxiliary container for purposes of commerce or otherwise. Yost's lawsuit says to ban the transfer and sale of single-use plastic bags by stores and vendors and to criminalize such conduct violates the Ohio Constitution, infringes on the rights of its citizens, and causes irreparable harm. I mean, this is a case that's likely to really test the limits of home rule under the state constitution that gives local governments the right to self-governance. So as long as their rules don't conflict with the general laws of the state, um, you know, this might seem like, I guess, uh, it will end up being a slam dunk for the state, but apparently it's not because analysts with the Legislative Service Commission, which is a nonpartisan office that, it, that helps lawmakers, they wrote at the time of passage of the state budget bill when this was baked into it, that it was unclear how it would impact a municipal ban on plastic bags. So this is indeed still an open question. What I suspect will happen before this case can be resolved is the legislature will pass a ban on this and end the discussion. They tried. They didn't get it done. But they hate home rule. They hate when especially uh, Democratic cities do anything that violates their sensibilities. And my bet is there'll be a bill introduced overnight to to prohibit cities from doing it, which would make the whole thing moot. It is odd that they didn't put in specific language to say plastic bags when they slipped in the very cryptic language they use. So the law isn't clear. I'm not sure what Yost is thinking on it. The other thing is, why is Yost doing this? What does he care what Athens does about plastic bags? It Mm. seems like an odd one for him to take on. Well, I mean, I could see how it would set a precedent for the rest of the state. Because look, Cuyahoga County also attempted to do do this. And then when they got slapped back by the state's attempt to undermine it, they, they really watered down their their ban. Now it's just a suggestion to stores with some incentive to do it or something like that. It's like, what was the point? It's so weak. So, you know, if Athens prevails here, um, they or if they get to do it, I could see other other bigger cities and counties taking the step toward banning the bags. 
this is just, I just can't believe that we're even asking this question. But you can't forget. Bags are terrible. Come Uh, on. Well, you can't forget that at the beginning of the pandemic, when nobody was quite sure how the coronavirus was, was being transmitted, everybody wanted their plastic bags. They were all afraid of using their multiple use bags because they were worried that it was spreading the coronavirus. And that really was what torpedoed talk of plastic bag bands. Everybody went back to them well, for that sanitation now. reason. I mean, and, and actually that that scare was over early in the pandemic. Everyone stopped stopped worrying about that. That can, you know, mm-hmm. I just, I, this is, I think a hundred years from now that we'll look back, if, you know, society will look back on this and, and find it to be the most myopic debate about something that's just clearly a scourge on the environment. Millions and millions of bags flow into the landfills every year. This is it's ridiculous to suggest. There are plenty of stores that that uh don't don't use bags. Look at Costco and Aldi. People show up with their their containers to take their stuff home. They carry their right. stuff out to their car and load it up. It's not a problem. So or they use the strawberry cartons that are piled at the yeah. front of the store, right? All right, interesting. It's uh, We'll have to watch and see how this goes, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a new bill in the legislature. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is this sour grapes because the Ohio Steel Company didn't win the bidding war, or do pi- bipartisan lawmakers have a legitimate beef? Lisa, why are they calling for an investigation of the sale of U.S. Steel to a Japanese company? Yeah, there's a, a group of 50 Congress members in the House that have signed a bipartisan letter asking the Biden administration to review the sale of U.S. steel to the Japanese company Nippon Steel. They want to look for possible national security issues. And I have to say, Ohio's pretty sensitive about imported steel anyway, or foreign steel ownership. Uh, we have a long history with steel. Um, they said that we must preserve domestic steel production and jobs and make sure the buyer commits to respecting that and collaborating with the U.S. workforce. The Ohioans who signed on to this letter were all Democrats, no Republicans. They included Amelia Sykes of Akron, Chantel Brown of Warrensville Heights, Marcy Kaptur of Toledo, and Greg Landsman of Cincinnati. And of course, both U.S. senators have previously expressed concern over this proposed sale. Uh, Senator Sherrod Brown sent a December 20th letter to Biden that says, make sure there's a robust regulatory review of the sale and consider its effects on U.S. steel exports, national security, the supply chain, and the industrial base. Senator J.D. Vance wrote a letter on the 19th to Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, who is chair of the Commission on Foreign Investment in U.S. He says he wants to block the acquisition by NSC. He says they have a deeply flawed record in the United States. Steel is one of those industries that are the core of a nation. And so you can, I can understand the anxiety lawmakers feel that one of the major steel producing entities is going to be in the hands outside the country. I, I don't know what they can do really to block it. Is there, are they, do they really believe the law would be on their side? I think they're looking at the national security hook. I think that's what they're saying here. But, you know, I, I anyone who was here in the late seventies in Cleveland, when J&L steel closed down, I mean, it had huge ripple effects that we're still experiencing today. Yeah. I, I'm glad they're looking closely at it. It does seem like one of those issues that needs a lot of oversight. Uh, We'll have to see where they go with it in the Biden administration. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is there some hope on the horizon for helping parents of children with special needs get childcare? Layla, this is 
childcare, as we've discussed, is hard to get for everybody, but particularly with children that have extra needs. Yeah, Gretchen Kudakron brings us this reporting. She tells us there, there are federal rules against discriminating against children with disabilities, but the line can be blurry between a disability and what might be considered just poor behavior, especially if there hasn't been a diagnosis. And of course, you know, there's the practical matter of, you know, a lot of child care centers have trouble meeting the special needs of some children despite the law saying that they must. But, you know, there is a possible step forward that came this past fall when Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announced the creation of a program designed to increase access to quality child care and support services for kids with special needs. It's called the PROMISE program that stands for Ohio Promotes Resources, Opportunities, and Meaningful Inclusion Through Support and Education. And it aims to meet the, the goal by credentialing special need caregivers, offering specialized training and support, and giving them a special designation in the child care database so parents can find them more easily. Grants were also offered to child care centers, and individual child care scholarships are available to parents of special needs kids at or below 200% of the poverty level. But it does sound like the funding is is a, is a little limited. Gretchen spoke to one childcare provider who said the money ran out before her team could be fully credentialed. And and while there are some agencies that that offer free consulting services for childcare centers that wish to be a provider for children with special needs, those resources are also in high demand. We've got to make this the year that DeWine and the legislature get behind helping parents with childcare. This is part of our Rethinking Child Care series that ran through much of last year. We'll continue this year. Good story by Gretchen. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We discussed last year that Ohio won a bunch of money to study rail service between its major cities. Lisa, what does Susan Glazer tell us has to happen next to get that service in place by the end of the decade? Yeah, this is interesting. And actually, we're really starting to see a timeline come forward on this. So, you know, just last month, the Federal Railroad Administration gave grants to 69 recipients to expand passenger rail, four of them in Ohio. There would be three new lines plus the expansion of an existing Amtrak line. The executive director of the Mid-Ohio Regional Planning Commission, uh, William Murdoch, says there are three phases of planning. They should take about 18 months to three years, all told, before upgrading rail lines and building stations can begin. He says perhaps the first train will roll by September of 2030, but he says we don't want to take 10 to 20 years. Time is of the essence. We're already behind. So the phase one is the initial planning, which is occurring right now with those grants. Phase two would be a service development plan, which would include the cost, estimated passengers, station locations, and train speed. And then phase three would be the design and engineering to prepare for the capital investment of building stations and so forth. Murdoch says the trains should average 79 miles an hour. That was a concern of Governor DeWine. He says, I don't want them running at 35 miles an hour. But he said he expects heavy lobbying from cities along these proposed routes to have stops, which would, of course, make the, the journey a bit longer. There was a 2022 report from Amtrak, and they said the Cleveland uh, to Cincinnati trip would take about five hours and 40 minutes that's compared to four hours if you drive in a car. And he says that train speed should increase in the future. Like right now in Michigan, there are trains that run over 100 miles an hour. I just, I still don't understand why we're spending time on this instead of really going for high speed 
You go to Europe, they have high-speed rail. It's a big investment, but this is not high-speed, and I just... I have a hard time seeing how this is worth that investment. Well, and of course, as you know, most of the rail lines that are privately owned in the United States, and we have to give way to freight traffic. So, and I do believe high-speed rail has a different track gauge. So you right. would probably have to totally redo the infrastructure. It would be crazy expensive. They're saying the 3C and D line, which is Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton, is going to cost about $1.2 to $1.5 billion in capital investments. And that's on the existing track. That correct. Uh, you're right. The cost of, yeah, I get it. But I just, I, I don't know. Are people going to use it if it's not getting them there much more quickly? The model's there. We see it in other countries. We just don't embrace it here because we're car culture. You're listening to today in Ohio. On Monday, we discussed the booting of a judge. Tuesday, I guess it was the booting of a judge from the Cuyahoga County bench for terrible courtroom antics. Layla, who's his temporary replacement, and how temporary might it be? Oh, the Supreme Court chose retired Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Judge Janet Burnside, who who I remember from my days covering the court 15 years ago. Uh, she retired from the bench in 2018 after serving nearly 30 years. She's going to take over Judge Dan Gall's docket for the next year. Gall's law license was suspended for a year as punishment for his just terrible conduct on the bench. But because he's 70 years old, he would not be allowed to run again. So this punishment most likely amounts to the end of his judicial career. But, you know, there's some some questions here about whether he'll return uh, for a few days by the end of his uh, at the end of his term. Under the Ohio Supreme Court's rules of procedure, a judge whose law license is suspended for misconduct remains away from office for the duration of the penalty and is reinstated once it's lifted. The state law provides possible ways for legislators to remove or impeach the judge from office and Oh, Governor DeWine would then get to appoint someone to fill the seat until the next general election. Gall's seat is up for election in November. So lawmakers could allow Burnside to remain on the bench through Gall's suspension and then let voters choose his replacement. If the legislature doesn't declare Gall's seat vacant, he could technically return to the bench on December 29th, 2024, and he would have seven days until his term ends on January 5th. Uh, so it's interesting. I, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he would. Maybe he would do that. <laughs> so there's nothing in the Ohio law that says if you're an elected official and cannot serve in your official capacity, you vacate the seat. I don't. I don't know. I didn't. I, I, he he was elected to serve as judge. He no longer can serve as judge for twelve months. For for crying out loud, I, I don't understand how that doesn't create the vacancy, that he can come back at the end after having not done the job for a year. It's bizarre. According to the story, you know, it says that that the law says that you remain out of office until your penalty has been fulfilled and then you're reinstated. Your law, your law license is reinstated. But he he was elected to serve the community in an official capacity he no longer is competent to do that. And we're just supposed to wait until he comes back. That makes no sense. It would seem to me that the law should be clear that if you're elected to an office and you are incapable of serving, you have de facto vacated the office and we all need to move on. This does a disservice to the citizens of Cuyahoga County. I'm glad Janet Burnside's in. She has a great reputation. I don't know why she'd want to come back, right? She's the same age as him. She got on the bench roughly, or I think the same, same year, year he did. 91. 
Yeah. So wh- why do you want to come back? Don't you want to enjoy your retirement? I mean, it's just, but good for her. And uh, the citizens at Guyana County have been good stead. I didn't real. I I've learned recently that Gall was the judge who oversaw issues with Metro Health. You know, we have judges that oversee the parks and things. So they need somebody in that seat, and uh, I'm sure she'll serve competently. You're listening to Today in Ohio. An Ohio political operative who advised Donald Trump's 2016 campaign is owning up to keeping secret that he had set up an organization with ties to Qatar's government. Lisa, why is he in trouble for that, and what's it going to cost him? 60-year-old lobbyist Barry Bennett signed a deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice over his failure to reveal an organization that he established had ties to Qatar, financial ties. Bennett and Douglas Watts of New Jersey used money to establish what they called the Yemen Crisis Watch organization that would have improved Qatar's standing with the U.S. government and draw attention to Saudi Arabia's conduct in Yemen. Uh, Bennett, as you said, was a former advisor to Trump in his 2016 presidential campaign. He was also a top aide to U.S. Senator Rob Portman and other Ohio Congress members. So he will pay a fine of $100,000 for concealing from the DOJ's Foreign Agents Registration Act unit that the, you know, and the charges will be dismissed with prejudice if he does comply with that. So Bennett did file paperwork with FARA to say that he, he was working for Qatar, but he didn't mention the ties to the Yemen organization as required. I, it, it was odd that this really had nothing to do with his political parts, but mm-hmm. because he didn't disclose it, it creates big trouble for him. So we're talking about him because he's a political operative who was active in Ohio and, and dealt with Trump. This really has nothing to do with that. No, nothing at all. And actually, it kind of sounds like a, a, a little bit of an administrative oversight because he did say he was working for Qatar, but he didn't just mention their their financial ties to that Yemen crisis watch organization. So it might have been a paperwork miss. It might have been intentional, but he's going to pay a hundred thousand bucks and and uh, you know get out of that. Hundred thousand dollar paperwork mistake. Glad I don't have any of those on my ledger. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. This next one's scary. Giant Eagle announced scammers targeted customer credit cards at five Ohio stores, including some in Northeast Ohio. What did they do, Layla, and how did Giant Eagle end the threat? Well, okay. First of all, Lisa, I'll admit, I've always thought you were a little paranoid about the (laughs) the potential that something like this could happen. But as soon as I started reading this story, I was like, Lisa was right. (laughs) It could happen, and it has happened. Giant Eagle announced that skimmer devices that could read customers' credit and debit cards were found and removed at five of their Ohio stores. These are devices that are installed on pin pads and card readers to illegally gather people's card numbers so they can be used for fraudulent purchases. These were discovered in three Giant Eagle stores in our area, too, three of the five, on Bidolf Road in Brooklyn, on Snow Road in Parma, and on Mayfield Road in South Euclid. The company said in their news release Wednesday that the skimmers may have captured information for a small number of customers who swiped a payment card on the pin pads. But because most customers have the chips in their cards, which are inserted and not swiped, most customers should not be affected, hopefully. Uh, So 
you know, they said they found one of these in a store in the Columbus area on November 3rd. So they decided to check all the stores. They eventually found four more by November 9th. Of course, the question is, why didn't they tell consumers sooner? It's been a couple months since these discoveries. Giant Eagle says they had to send the devices away for a full forensic analysis first. Mm. The, the disappointment here is that they refuse to describe what they look like. Yeah. Because for the consumer, that would be useful information. If, I, if I'm about to swipe my card and I see some kind of weird-looking gizmo that I know because I read it in the story, I'm, I'm going to protect myself. But they won't describe what it appeared like. So you don't know if they somehow got into the electronics of these things and there was no outward appearance I, or if this was attached to the outside somewhere. I Googled around to see what they look like. They appear to be small attachments that clips onto the slot where you scan your mm-hmm. card. It just right. kind of mm-hmm. buttresses it out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Right. And they really do look like part of the machine. Mm-hmm. So it would be easy to dismiss it if you saw one of these uh, if if you were if you didn't know that it didn't look like the others in the store, you could just use it without thinking. But I read one story that said you should try to wiggle the scanner every time you use it to see hmm. if it moves or if it's actually part of the store's scanning equipment. If it wiggles around, you should report it to a store manager. Apparently, scammers will often attach these to the scanners at gas pumps, yeah, that's where mm-hmm. they could really go undetected for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I just think it's in incom- Giant Eagle's customers were put at risk by Giant Eagle store scanners. They they have a duty to tell their customers about it. They shouldn't have waited two months to do it because by then, how many thousands of dollars could have been racked up on the cards? And they should be more helpful about what to look for. They're, they're not really doing the customer-friendly job here. So shame on Giant Eagle. And I assume that their, their you know, prolonged forensic analysis was really so that they could roll out this news with a, don't worry, we found out it's really not as bad as you think. You know, or, or, but, or that they found them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they're warning the consumers was you ought to check your accounts to see if there's anything unusual. Yeah. It's like, the scanners were in your stores, man. You should be doing more than that. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about a provocative study that is just out that shows that gun-related crimes in Ohio cities largely went down, not up, after the state allowed permitless carries of guns. Not what was predicted by many who opposed it. Many predicted wild, wild west. This looks like a legitimate study by Bowling Green University. We're checking it out today, looking if there's any flaws in it. We'll be talking about it on the Friday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thank you for listening. Come back Friday. We'll wrap up the week of news.